0: Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined
1: Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms and, again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to
0: patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. got that turned off. That's ready to go. Okay. Um. Cool. Alright. We're good to record. Uh, I guess before I like hit the button, you said you had a sad story or something you needed to tell me from nursing days or whatever?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know. It just kind of popped in my mind. I was taking care of this patient, and then there was another patient, this lady. She was in the room next door, and she had podcasted a couple days ago. I mean, she just podcasted, sitting there, looking out the window. Nobody even listened to her podcast. Nobody even listened before dinner time. And you know what they say, there's only one cure for bad podcasting. Old age. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Start the episode. That's the only quote I got. All right. Welcome to another episode of Watch If You
0: Dare, a horror movie podcast in which... We, your spook boys, discuss fears, phobias, social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres. That's right, this is me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek. And uh, we're going to discuss just how scary these movies are for horror newbies
1: and horror junkies alike. Is everybody ready? Strap in! Yeah, God told me to record this episode. This is going to be a fun one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just us boys today, no, no guests. Peek behind the curtain. This is going to be our last one before we actually go on a recording hiatus. Thankfully, we've recorded so many episodes that there won't be a break for you guys. It'll all be invisible. Uh, but yeah. for us, this will be invisible. So this is kind of an episode also for us, especially me. I've been wanting to do this episode for a while. I even mentioned it on our hundredth episode when we talked about episodes we're looking forward to going in the next hundred episodes, and this was one I specifically listed. It's been a minute since we've done Larry Cohen. The only other Larry Cohen movie we've done is the stuff, which we did way back, so I am excited. Yeah, in a
0: lot of ways, this is a one for me as well, because this is something that is more cult, more exploitation, more off the beaten path, and uh, this is a wild one. So, yeah, before we get into that, let's talk recommendations, Derek. So, of course, we're going to discuss any other movies TV shows, comic books, video games, regular books, book books, audio books, phone books that we have checked out lately <laughs> that are horror related that you might be interested in as well, viewers. So
1: Derek, uh, what have you got? Yeah, so actually I've got three and they are all comic book related, kind of. The first one I'm going start with is actually a Junji Ito manga. Okay, This is one that is lesser known, I'd say. It originally was serialized back in September 2004 and ran until July 2005, and it was only published in one volume, and it was serialized in Big Comic Spirits, uh, which is a weekly manga magazine. It is called Remina, R-E-M-I-N-A. It is super sci-fi horror apocalypse, but it is also Junji Ito doing like, cosmic horror but only in a way that junji ito can do we'll talk about this later with with larry cohen larry cohen and junji ito both two guys that will take somewhat familiar horror concepts but then do something so wildly original and creative that only their brains can think of and this is a yet another example of that imagine if ego the living planet slash lars von trier's melancholia was happening where a rogue planet enters our universe. <laughs> okay. And they actually start this off by saying it was actually discovered by the scientists who viewed it go through a wormhole. Like, they basically proved the theory that black holes are actually wormholes, so they theorize that this planet actually entered our universe from an alternate universe that's on the other side of a wormhole. The scientist basically gets super famous for discovering this planet, and he has a teenage daughter who named Romina, so he names the planet after her. This is all like set up pretty quick, so I'm not spoiling anything. And it's pretty much all there on the opening premise anyway. They find out very quickly that this planet is traveling abnormally fast, and that it's already entered our solar system way sooner than they thought was possible. And they had seen it when ever encountered other planets and other stars the stars and planets just disappear. Okay. They start finding out that any planet that Romina comes in contact with or star literally gets eaten by the planet, just destroyed. And they actually start seeing it destroy like Uranus, Neptune, and like make its way down the solar system. And it gets leaked out to the public. And then everyone just goes, apocalypse ape shit as you'd expect yeah yeah so well all that cosmic horror is happening right because one of the scientists goes crazy thinking that the planet literally has an eye that looked at her when they she was looking in a the telescope they think it's actually literally eating planets opening a big giant ma- mouth and like a giant tongue coming out wrapping around a planet and engulfing it and eating it whole which if you know jujito is yeah it's not a spoiler <laughs> that's what rumina is at one point they sent a manned probe onto the surface of Romina and the trippiest artwork you know Bill Sienkiewicz when he did New Mutants and he did the Demon Bear Saga uh yes that is like some of the most rad fucking artwork ever yeah take that and put a like Junji Ito like fucked up spin on that where like the whole planet is twisted and made of fleshy body parts and eyes and shit and these shadows everywhere I'm not doing it justice I would tell listeners to maybe Google Images search this, but at the same time, I don't necessarily want you to spoil anything for yourself. Anything Junjiito related is even better if you don't really know what you're getting sure. into, which is what happened with me. I only knew from the basic premise. But it's
0: stuff that also escalates.
1: Oh, it escalates.
0: As much as you <laughs> have said, that's the kind of story that will escalate so much higher than just the initial premise. So don't spoil yourself on like where exactly yeah. and
1: how far that goes. So where they start going with the escalation is while all that cosmic shit is happening, the people on Earth are going apeshit, and they start blaming all of this on the scientist and his daughter Ramina to the point where they start believing that they can satisfy the planet if they ritualistically kill them. There's imagery of crosses in this. There's imagery of the human group that's trying to capture both of them to m- execute them. And I think he does this on purpose. Junjito, that is. They kind of look Ku Klux klan with their outfits.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, like I think they're supposed to be executioner hoods that they're wearing, but the outfit really comes across as a weird variation. From an American sensibility, yes. I, I yeah. understand what you're saying, okay. Yeah, the thing that's crazy about this, because I complained about this on a recent episode and off air with you, uh, Aaron, that a lot of the newer media I've been consuming, especially from comic books, is a lot of trauma porn. Here's the thing. This story has all of the beats that could lead to trauma porn. The main character, Ramina herself, who, who again, is a 16 year old girl. I mean, she gets tortured. She gets used by all the males around her who are like all trying to save her in different ways, but all for the basically same purpose that they're in love with her and they want her to like love them back there's only like one main character who arguably is doing it for altruistic purposes. And even he feels guilty because he basically was her agent who signed her into entertainment and made her like the face of Japan for a while, which is why like, all these people are obsessed with her and and immediately turn on her as soon as they think that her and her father are the cause of this planet. And the fact that the planet is named after her that leads to them trying to kill her, she gets abused. As far as content warnings, there is like a lot of physical abuse. There's not full-on rape, I can say that. But there is some sexual assault, but also just physical violence done. I mean, she gets mentally fucked through this entire story. It's not a pleasant story, but it's done again in that instead of focusing on the trauma and making this like, super tragic fucked up and dark, it just focuses on straight up being fucked up and dark in the Junji Ito way yeah. of things. Okay. It doesn't feel very trauma porn to me. Like This still feels like a fucked up, just straight up cosmic horror story, even though you're following like both this demonic planet and then you're focusing on Ramina trying to survive the entire time. Again, I'm not going to go any further than this because like what happens becomes wild I might have to edit this down a good bit because you're giving away a lot of this story. Yeah.
0: I'm very curious to check this one out now. But
1: yeah, I mean, edit- you might want to yeah. kind of
0: leave it at that and let everybody kind of go and check it out from there because it sounds really intriguing.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that it, it, Junji Ito is exploring like the horrors of fame at the same time, the horrors of cosmic science at the same time, the horrors of societal breakdown in the face of an impending p- apocalypse all at the same time. He packs all of that into this, and I read it in one sitting. It took me maybe two hours to read through the whole thing. I flew through this, and it is like a 200-plus page manga. And I'll just leave it out there, because I, if I keep talking, I'm just going to keep spoiling stuff that gets wild. But yeah, if you want something that's a lot more off the beaten path for Junji Ito, Ramina is a pretty good place to start. You know, is it as good as Uzumaki? No, not at all. Uh, Uzumaki's a fucking masterpiece. And plus, this is shorter than Uzumaki as it is anyway, sure. but for like his take on basically again, like his take on Ego the Living Planet or Lars von Trier's Melancholia. It's pretty fucking rad. So yeah, that's Junji Ito, Romina. Moving on from that, the other two comics, these are more straightforward. These were Marvel comics. They you can now probably find them in most comic shops and collected in volumes. Both of these were written by our buddy Colin Bunn, who's been on two of our episodes Hell in the yeah. past. They're actually follow-ups to each other in a way, but loose follow-ups. I'll start with the first one that he published. It's called Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe. This was written back in August 2012. Deadpool kind of had a resurgence. I would say back as far as 2006, 2007, where he started becoming a lot more mainstream in Marvel Comics. There was definitely a correlation between geek internet takeover
0: yeah social media just a lot of the like lol random pizza tacos just that yeah. era of the internet it's all very much like a one in one trajectory i feel like with that character because i remember around the time that this character was coming back into popularity and that seems to be not only what was going on but like what the entirety of deadpool comics kind of were at the
1: time Yeah, and he's become basically an A-lister now, even to this point. Joe Kelly had a run with him in the 90s that a lot of people point to is really good, but he was still a B-lister at that point. He's become very mainstream now. And 2012, it was still very much at the height of Deadpool having a thousand spin-off books. What sets this apart from the others is, A, it's Colin Bunn writing it. B, it's Colin Bunn approaching the idea of what if Deadpool literally became a slasher for superheroes and supervillains? So, my whole argument and my own personal belief about Deadpool is he actually is a great character. I think a lot of people get hung up on the lol, tacos, pizza, internet humor, like you mentioned earlier, Aaron. And I think some writers just focus way too much on the silliness. But when writers focus on the fucked up darkness around Deadpool, especially when it's like a tragic comedy, he can work really well, and some writers have done a great job of that. And then Colin approached it with an interesting idea of what if we turned Deadpool basically into a Freddy Krueger, but like the first Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger, where sure. he was kind of jokey, but he was fucking terrifying, unstoppable force, and again, embraces Deadpool's curse of immortality and his awareness that he is in a comic book. It plays with that idea in very clever ways. Cullen again is just a good horror writer, so if you approach this as a horror comic, it's very satisfying. So here's the lead up to it. It Starts with me as him murdering the fuck out of the Fantastic Four, like in pretty gruesome ways. You flash back and you find earlier on the X Men commit him to Ravencroft Asylum, which is basically like Marvel's Arkham Asylum. Sure. Because there is this new star doctor who is curing supervillains of their evil nature. The X-Men will want to get Deadpool help. The Doctor turns out to be like a more obscure Marvel villain called Psycho Man. Of course. Yeah, who is like a microverse villain. So I don't really know much about him uh, because I don't know anything about the microverse. Is that the Micronauts? Yes. Okay, That's like where the Micronauts came from.
0: AKA, this was a weird collaboration with a toy company where they made the toys the Micronauts, and then there was the comic to support the Micronauts, but it's this weird corner of the Marvel Universe that nobody deals with, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, like, Psycho Man's been around. I think Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created him back in the 60s. He is basically, like, the Doctor Doom of the Microverse, but he's not as iconic or well-known as Magneto, Doctor Doom, etc. Anyway, like, so this guy turns out to be Doctor Psycho, and he's basically been brainwashing his patients all the supervillains to do his bidding his whole idea is i'm gonna make an army of unstoppable supervillains unite them all together and that's how i'm gonna kill all the heroes and he starts doing it the same to deadpool and like he knows that deadpool as he is in her voices so his plan is to basically like kill the voices in his head so he can replace it with his own fucking backfires and instead it wipes out the two voices that were there his goofy like comic voices And, like, replaces it with this new murderous voice that, again, drawing this to God told me to, he's basically telling Deadpool, you need to use your ability and your awareness that you're in a comic to kill continuity. And the best way to do that is by, like, gruesomely murdering the entire Marvel Universe. And so then the next five issues is Deadpool just, like, murdering the fuck out of all the superheroes and supervillains. It doesn't matter. And he does it in some pretty creative and fucked up ways. It shows how deadly he can be as a character without any limitations and without him trying to be the jokey, get along with the heroes kind of Deadpool that we do know. He's effectively immortal, and a lot of people forget that. And I mean, Deadpool also gets just as fucked up through this entire series. Like, He gets his head exploded. He gets ripped apart. So it's an extremely bloody, extremely gory comic. At least the title and the premise is a play on a Garth Ennis one-shot comic that was The Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe that Garth Ennis put out back in the 90s where it was what if the Punisher's family instead of getting killed by the mob was killed in like a giant crossover event that happened in Central Park when his family was picnicking and he takes it out on Superhelons and superheroes and goes to proceed killing all of them. And so that's kind of like what is a play on. So that's Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe. Now, the interesting part is that Cullen would then return to it with a follow-up in 2017, okay. not that long ago, and this one's called Deadpool kills the Marvel universe again. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, but the thing is this is a completely different story. It's the same general idea, that, like Deadpool was like kind of Jason Voorhees slasher style like murdering the fuck out of heroes, but there's a mystery behind it because when the other heroes that are in following him in his trail of destruction and death, they keep finding these messages that are like help me, save me, I don't want to do this, etc. You're finding out that maybe he's not doing this on his own. The other thing is that what sets this one apart from the first one is it's a different Deadpool. It's a sympathetic Deadpool. And the way he is doing it is he's having a different hallucination with each character, depending on the character then. So he's almost jumping into a different genre comic book. The art style changes and it's all happening in Deadpool's head. And he thinks he's doing goofy like adventures with whoever he's murdering. So, like, at one point, he murders children's superheroes. So in the uh, panels, course, it, yeah. it shows him in, like, a children's drawing doing the old, like, oh, let's stop the rhino from stealing all our pies. But it, it then flashes to reality, and he's massacred all these kids, Anakin-style. As the story progresses, it also does kind of a play on Old Man Logan, at least the setup of Old Man Logan, in an interesting way that I'm not going to exactly say how or why. But it's like, what if instead of Old Man Logan, they used Deadpool and they did it for everybody, not just the X-Men? If you know the Old Man Logan story, then you probably can figure out where I'm going with that. But I really enjoy that Cullen made this completely different. Like he didn't make this a direct sequel to the first one because frankly, the first one didn't need it. And they are both horror comics, but this one at least initially feels less horror. Like the first one definitely feels straight up slasher horror for superheroes. This one's a little more nuanced and a little more of a straightforward superhero story, but the consequences are a lot more dire than we're normally used to, and the fact that these are both self-contained four- or five-issue miniseries, Cullen could get away with whatever he wanted, with shooting whatever he wanted to whoever characters. And again, these were more adult parental advisory comics, so they're a lot more gory. If you want to see heroes get brutally slaughtered, here you go. Here's two examples right here. They felt kind of Garth Ennis in that way, but because Colin is the one writing it, it didn't feel sophomoric in those childish ways that I feel that a lot of Garth Ennis's writing is. And I know we brought that up, and I know I'll probably lose us listeners every time I do it, but it, it doesn't feel super mean spirited, uh, especially the first Deadpool, just Deadpool kills the Marvel universe. If any of them feel mean spirited, that one feels maybe more mean spirited. But there's mean spirited shit in both of these, but it doesn't feel like. Icky, like it doesn't feel problematic in any way, but yeah, they're gory, fun rides. Both of them, both are pretty good explorations of Deadpool, the character himself, and I really enjoy that. Both of them are kind of only loosely tied together, but they're otherwise completely different stories. And frankly, you could technically read Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe again, standalone if you wanted to, without reading the other one. But I think it'd be fun to read them back to back. Like I said, you could probably find both of these in collected volumes pretty easily at your local comic shop i suggest using like a local store's website or like buying it through their ebay store page so again you can still support a local shop instead of amazon but yeah so deadpool kills the marvel universe and deadpool kills the marvel universe again both written by our buddy Colin bunn pretty good shit so those are all the recommendations i have all comics and ma- a manga Hell yeah cool well uh i kind of again, did the same thing
0: I've been doing for the last couple of months and I tried to like kind of think of some related stuff to the movie that we're discussing. I have two movie picks. I'll go ahead and talk about the like heavier one of the two, which is a movie that came out last year, directed by Ali Abbasi, who did a very interesting indie movie called Border that came out a couple of years ago and apparently he has directed, the last two episodes of The Last of Us, which Heather and I have finally started watching and we're halfway through now. This is a movie called Holy Spider that is based on a series of murders that occurred in the holy city of Mashhad in Iran between 2000 and 2001. لارن نم نورمی قاتل
1: انگو تیم گنگ
0: چی اصلا به خدا مفقت شنیدم ما
1: شش هفت ماه دنبالش هم خب سن چطوری که شما هنوز سر پیدا نکردید یک بیا کی جدار
0: Ich nehme gern in der in
1: Schachter Privatwarnen
0: The movie is following an investigative journalist played by Tsar Amir Ibrahimi. She is from definitely a larger city. You maybe get the hint that she's from a Western nation. I didn't look up a lot of the details around this case specifically because I just didn't have time. She comes to Mashhad and starts looking into this when it's clear that there is a pattern and trying to figure out Why is nobody taking this seriously? Why the police are not getting involved? What is going on? Because these are all women who are sex workers, and they are all being picked up, murdered in the same way. They're all being strangled with their own scarves and then dumped in very public places, and they're all being claimed by this killer who is calling himself... The Spider Killer, or at least the like, media and the neighborhoods have dubbed him the Spider Killer. Where this kind of also takes a slight diversion from things we've seen before, we know who the killer is from the very beginning. And we see a lot about his life, and we see a lot about how he operates. He is played by Mehdi Bajistani. The first two-thirds of it are not even really a cat and mouse. Because there is no pursuit. That's kind of what's frustrating is the female journalist in Iran in the year 2000, surprise surprise, is getting every door shut in her face every time that she comes to question anybody or talk to any officials everybody is very patronizing toward her and very like woman know your place so she is trying to kind of stir the pot to figure out what the fuck is going on meanwhile this guy is still going out in the night and he's married by the way he's married has a young wife and two kids and he is still going out frequently and picking up women murdering them dumping them where this is interesting is two-thirds of the way through, this completely shifts gears and becomes a courtroom drama, where it's even more disturbing, and where it's even more related to God told me to. You know the entire time that the killer's entire motive for this is, well, I'm doing the work of Allah. I'm cleaning the streets of these impure women. Hmm. I am taking these whores off the streets, you know, in the name of Allah, all right? He's been very upfront about that every time that he calls the newspaper to say, I've murdered somebody else, right? And so the last third that becomes this courtroom drama is interesting because the entire thing takes a pretty hard character turn for him where he starts to see, oh, a lot of the community supports what I did. A lot of the people support what I did. A lot of the officials and the politicians and the clerics support what I did because, of course, I'm doing his work. You know, this was what was intended. And so he becomes super high on his own bullshit and ego-driven. And even when the clerics are telling him, like, you have to fucking tone this down for your own sake, he is 100% in his convictions around, no, like, I did the right thing. And what's wild is not just the community, when his teenage son goes to get groceries, you know, they're like, oh, just take them. Your dad was doing the Lord's work. His wife is like totally behind him. And it's like, no, my husband was doing great shit. He's totally innocent. So you start to kind of see just how deep the religious angle of this is in the nation and how that just warps everybody's thinking and how women especially women who are sex workers are 100% as you know, the saying goes in true crime less than dead, right? It's not just that they are murder victims. It is that nobody gives a shit. You know, the police clearly do not care. If they're looking the other way. So yeah, it's a tough sit, right? There is a lot of sexual violence in the movie and it's just, it's dark, you know, it, it's tough subject matter, but it's an extremely interesting movie. I think, If I am being honest, I would like to have seen more of The Last Third. I think the movie needed a little bit less of seeing the killer do his routine and a little more of, I want to see the political and social back end of this whole thing. Because it does end in such a tantalizing, like, holy shit, what happens now kind of way. I'm also very curious... Why was this not just made into a doc, I guess? It seems like a story like this is pretty cut and dry, and we know all the facts, seemingly. So why not just make a doc, I guess? I don't know. Maybe it just whatever. It's not my place to, like. I guess, question why was this movie made, right? But it kind of left me wanting more, I guess. I I wish that this was maybe a little bit more of a blown-out documentary. And weirdly enough, to plug another podcast... I was just listening to the new episode of F This Movie, and the host, Patrick Bromley, was actually just complaining about, oh yeah, there's true crime docs, and I kind of get excited until I see like, oh, this is a four-to-six-part series that's five hours long, and it probably could have just been like a a two-and-a-half-hour movie. And now my thought is, oh, this two-hour movie, I kind of wish it was like maybe 45 minutes longer. (laughs) I don't know. Like, it's, It's definitely a movie that I think left me with more questions, Right. but a very appropriate pick considering the movie. This man was prompted by Allah to do his work, and then therefore we have, unfortunately, 16 women who lost their lives. So fun times. Yay! Again, that is Holy Spider from 2022, directed by Ali Abbasi. The other one, and I brought this up second because this will kind of lead us into the movie, and I guess we want to, like, still keep things a little level for the people who have not watched God Told Me To, which, again, this is your warning, like, go watch that fucking movie it is on shutter and they just put out the 4k from blue underground Derek, where did you watch it is it on Tubi B right
1: now i don't know no i i actually watched it on shutter and okay. if this next recommendation of yours is going to kind of give away stuff let me just talk about a little bit right up here spoiler free first there have been a couple times for our long-term listeners you know this where we've watched a movie that i wasn't expecting and it kind of fucking floors me when i see it the original black christmas we cover that as a good example This was one of those movies. This was a movie where I dug the general setup premise a ton, especially if you're American. Such a fucking terrifying idea of what if a mass killer gets confronted by the police and the only thing they tell the police is that God told me to. I had no idea where it was going to go and where it goes is unexpected to say the least. And I dug it 100,000%. This is one of those movies where I might have to reevaluate my favorite horror movies list and throw this one on there now. I had such a good response to this movie. Larry Cohen, and I mentioned this same thing with Junji Ito, Larry Cohen does wild original ideas that even seem somewhat, duh, simple, but no one had done it. I want to say this movie feels ahead of its time, but I'm not sure quite the timeline where it would not feel ahead of its time in some ways, if that makes any sense. It is scary, but not in the traditional sense of scary, especially, again, if you are American, especially right now in America. This movie came out in 1976. This movie might be more prescient, unfortunately, yet again. In a variety of ways. In a variety of ways to now than it ever was in 1976, which is fucking terrifying. It holds up a mirror in so many ways to what we've been seeing lately. Who knows? By the time this fucking recording drops... There might be another mass shooting in America that was gigantic and horrifying.
0: According to gunviolencearchive.org, 224 separate mass shootings have occurred in the US between May 5th, 2023, when this episode was recorded, and August 3rd. Of the 994 victims, 193 have perished.
1: The chances are pretty likely by the time this recording drops, and that sucks. So, kind of content warning going into this. There are multiple depictions of mass violence that seem to appear to happen randomly, and innocent people are just targeted for no rhyme or reason. So if that kind of is something you'd rather not watch in a horror movie, you may want to stay away from God Told Me To. If You can sit through that. The directions it goes in, I can't even reveal, like, even what they deal with without giving anything away, so I won't. But it is not what you expect, and I loved it. I was a 1,000% on board with it the whole entire way. Yeah, I can't recommend this enough. I can't recommend this enough for anybody, not just horror newbies, but like any horror fan who hasn't seen this. I could see a lot of people, maybe they're horror fans who haven't really dug into Larry Cohen's stuff too much. Yeah, frankly, like we've watched the stuff, we've seen this one now. If the other horror movies we cover by him are like just as creative and interesting, like I think I could make the argument that Larry Cohen deserves to be up there with John Carpenter and Wes Craven and like the other horror greats because. This movie blew me away. I mean, just
0: based on the Showtime show, Masters of Horror, technically Larry Cohen
1: is a Masters of Horror because he did an entry for that. Good. He deserves to be. And we'll we'll return to this because there is a direct comparison I got from this movie to works of another horror master. A horror master, frankly, we've covered more than once that would come out a couple of years after this movie drops that I saw a lot of comparisons to. And again, I don't want to bring that up right now because it'll spoil some of the stuff of this movie. So once we like go into our full discussion of God Told Me To where we're just being open with spoilers, I'll, I'll get back to that. But yeah, so I wanted to get that spiel out of the way now for like anyone who wants to pause our episode, go watch it before Aaron gets into his final recommendation that might give away some of the movie. Yeah. So my final recommendation is... A movie from
0: 1993, directed by Abel Ferrara, who directed Miss 45, King of New York, The Addiction, Bad Lieutenant, good old New York, crazy motherfucker director, (laughs) written by Larry Cohen. So there's the first connection. This is a movie that he wrote, did not direct, which he wrote a lot. Well,
1: also crazy New
0: York. Yeah, also crazy New York guy. He wrote a good bit. All the Maniac Cop movies are written by him. He did not direct any of them. So, yeah, he, he definitely got around as far as like scripts go. And then it was passed through the hands of Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli from Reanimator, From Beyond, Dagon, right? So, it's got a very interesting pedigree to it. This is Body Snatchers. There's something in the air. And it feels like fear. There's something in the night. And it seems like terror. There's someone in your bed. And it looks like you.
1: Mommy?
0: Life will be simpler now. The only thing missing... Mommy? ...will be you. Mommy? What's the matter, honey? What's the matter? There's Mommy. She's right there. What
1: happened? I'm seeing people at the infirmary exhibiting paranoia people afraid to sleep get in bed afraid of family members Let it go. people afraid of themselves we gotta go right now come
0: on Marty let's get out of here they're out there they're everywhere Where are you going to go? Where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? Nowhere.
1: Because there's no one like you left.
0: Body Snatchers. The invasion continues. They kill to be you which is the, what, second remake? Maybe third, I guess. How many other fucking remakes? There's the Kaufman one from 1974, but this one is kind of a rework of the general idea. Most people who have seen this one remember this is the one that is set on a military base. It stars Gabrielle Anwar from Scent of a Woman and Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. She is your typical gen x 90s teenager who gets drugged by her dad who is like an epa guy played by terry kinney from last of the mohicans the firm devil in a blue dress oz billions inventing anna he's one of those guys that you would know his face if you saw
1: him by the way this is the second remake original invasion of the bisonatchers was 56 The one with Donald Sutherland was 78, and then this one. Yeah, I couldn't remember, like,
0: if there had maybe been another one somewhere in there. But yeah, Terry Kinney is her dad, who is this EPA guy. There is a younger, like, four or five-aged brother, and then the stepmom, who is Meg Tilly from One Dark Night, Psycho 2, The Big Chill, and now the Chucky TV show— they all move on to this army base where there are a ton of weird, crazy chemicals being stored. And so the whole deal is the dad is there to make sure that everything's being stored properly and that there's no leaks and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, all of this ruffles the feathers of the base commander played by Arlie Ermy. Everything, of course, kind of goes off the edge because... Forrest Whitaker shows up, and he is one of the doctors on the base, and he's kind of telling them there's something fucked up happening here. People are acting weird. I've seen weird shit going on.
1: (laughs) I love the idea of Forrest Whitaker in that kind of role. Oh, he's great, yeah. (laughs) The, like,
0: teenage punk daughter of Arlie Ermey is Christine Elise from Child's Play 2, Cult of Chucky, and the Chucky TV show. She plays Kyle. She kind of becomes Gabrielle Anwar's friend and takes her out, and they meet cute helicopter pilot guy who ends up being kind of the lead guy later. So, I mean, it's, it follows all the typical beats. And, of course, they're pulling all these gross pods from a swamp nearby, and you get the idea that maybe the chemicals had something to do dot dot, dot with them. And even more than the 70s one, these are very gross plant-based pods that come for you at night, and they attach to you, and they copy your genetics and create a clone of you, essentially. And once it's completely done, your body turns to dust, and now you are officially replaced with a lookalike, right? It's just your standard version of this story, but the political angle is looking at conformity within the military structure— Very much, you could tell this. I mean, this movie came out in '93, so I guarantee you they were working on this movie in the post Reagan era and really reflecting on yuppie life and how the boomers kind of all went straight laced, especially moving into like a Bush senior era and just again the push to like everybody just be fucking normal, right? You have this teenage girl and her kind of punk friend. Pushing back against a lot of the norms that they see around them. So, I mean, there's that whole angle to this. Obviously, this is a post Desert Storm movie as well. So, I was
1: about to say that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There is definitely some like, mm, do we really trust everything that the military is telling us nowadays? Do we trust the line that is coming from the bigger capital M military and the big capital G government, right? And how that trickles down and affects people's regular everyday lives. It's an interesting look at how being in a contained area like that, like on a base, I mean, that's the kind of living situation you have been in for the last couple of years on a couple of different bases. You know, if things were to get out of hand, it can escalate pretty quickly. You know, I mean, you experience this all through. COVID and just how fucking serious they were with their COVID rules and restrictions and like mm-hmm. what you can
1: and can't do and where you can and can't go and how you have to do those things. Motherfuckers who tried to pull the MAGA like my rights got arrested by the MPs. Uh-huh. Zero tolerance for that shit. Yeah.
0: This movie's a very interesting look at all that. Plus, it's got really fucking good effects. Really cool, goopy, really genuinely scary, gross effects with the pods and Weird half formed human clone bodies just being like, ah, kill me,
1: right? <laughs> Is there a little bit of like a thing
0: to it? Not really, because it's more just these bodies are like growing to be a perfect duplicate, but they're not okay, gotcha. growing to be a weird mutation monster. The movie doesn't end with a giant rat king ball of nine people all mushed together <laughs> running down the hallway, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it it doesn't go that far, but yes. yeah, there's some cool shit in this movie. I genuinely. Kind of forgot, like, yeah, Abel Farrar used to make some very straightforward and functional movies, right? Because the stuff that I really go to of his is his more super edgy, experimental, kind of arty bullshit, like The Addiction and Miss 45, which is a, another fucking rough watch movie, but is maybe the best example of a, like, rape revenge movie as far as kind of how and where that movie goes. So, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting, straightforward movie from Ferrara. But again, it has that Cohen edge of satire, political and social commentary. And then it's got the goop factor from fucking
1: Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli, right? And because we properly warned the audience, so why did you want to forewarn them for possible spoilers to God told me to? In regard to this recommendation specifically,
0: because oh, bro, right? So <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. I'll, I'll bleep that out. Just know, like, it will become obvious as we discuss. God told me to what the other connection is besides just it was written by Larry Cohen, right? Yeah. So cool. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and transition into talking about this week's movie. Yeah, So we are talking about. God Told Me To, from 1976, written and directed by Larry Cohen. And produced by Larry Cohen. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was the all-in-one, can-do-everything, preferred-to-do-everything himself. That was very much his strength and his weakness in a lot of ways, right? He was able to get away with crazy shit like this movie that, let's be real, no other fucking studio or producer in their right mind would have done. But that's also his weakness as well. Is you only have a million dollars to work with? Enjoy, you know.
1: Yeah, and y'all like before we give you the teaser. When we say this was shot on location across New York City, it was shot on location as shit. Other people were doing other things, Love living their lives to the point where there is violence being done by two characters and there are just normal people walking in the background that just kind of look at it and keep walking in a couple of scenes. It it. is guerrilla filmmaking to the max. I've
0: said it before on this show. I love a good scummy shot in fucking nasty New York during the 70s and 80s movie. Love it.
1: In some ways, it reminded me of Assault on Precinct 13 because there were so many moments of that movie that were filmed before they get to the actual precinct. Where people are like looking directly into the camera because they're shooting it in yeah. actual real life. They don't have the budget to like shut down a street and stuff. So cool. Well, yeah, just, you know, brief blurb before we play the trailer.
0: This is a religious satire, horror, thriller, serial killer, dot, 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 other stuff that we'll get to movie, <laughs> cult. About <laughs> like everything. <laughs> a series of seemingly unrelated mass killings in which all these people who are unrelated to each other entirely their only reasoning for committing the violence is god told me to and we'll leave it there and just play the brief trailer which is not the best trailer in the world and apparently larry cohen did not like the trailer and funny enough the trailer was edited by Joe Dante of all people because he wow, was wow. working <laughs> for Corbin at this time so anyway yeah here's the train. on December 25th 1953 a child is born a virgin birth tomorrow all civilization will tremble under his almighty power he must
1: be obeyed <laughs> who was? is jesus really accept me no questions
0: sacrifices to your god are nothing new are you going to tell me all those people were meant to die why did you attack all those people
1: god told me to Y'all, and I'm going to clap my hands for effect. This movie fucking rules and is way ahead of its time and <laughs> even more appreciate now than it ever was before. This movie, again, like by Christmas, jumps straight up to like one of my favorite horror movies, period. Wild. Not that yeah. we've just even covered on this podcast. I mean, period. I was blown away. And first off, before we really dig into the meat of this movie, the 4K restoration, the one at least that's on Shutter, is beautiful. Yeah. The fact that this is a low budget 1976 movie and it looks that damn good, it looks better than a lot of higher budget movies we've covered on this show from the 70s and 80s that also had 4K restorations. It's colorful, it is vibrant, it is beautiful. Like, again, who put out the 4K restoration
0: recently, Aaron? So, Blue Underground has the like American distro rights to this and they put out a 4K of it recently that is chef's kiss beautiful we watched it the other night like i mentioned to you i believe what's on shutter is that 4k transfer they're using the same key art and everything as the new 4k transfer and it does look good because i pulled it back up to look at a scene real quick that said shutter does not stream in 4k but it will give you a much better idea of what this movie really looks like compared to like all the other versions of this that were on streaming prior certainly this is a movie that I saw for the first time in high school. I mentioned before, there was a guy a couple of blocks from us that owned kind of an everything junk shop. And us being kids, we would go over there and kind of haggle with him for like,
1: Hi kids, you want to see a dead body? <laughs> nah, he wasn't that crazy. He was, <laughs> I know, he I was know. a crazy guy, but he
0: wasn't that crazy. But he had. You could tell a lot of his own personal stuff in there that he was On selling sale. trying to get yeah. money, right, and he had a ton of v h s tapes, ton of vinyl records, like that kind of stuff that we would you know basically haggle with him for or like trade with him for and this was one of the v h s tapes that I got from him because the box art was just what the fuck it's just a giant pair of eyeballs in the sky with all these people screaming and like staring up at him. You know, the title is like in drippy blood, God told me to. And I was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) So, I mean, this was definitely my first foray into Larry Cohen because I believe I saw this before I saw It's Alive or The Stuff or Q. And, you know, if I saw those other movies first, I didn't necessarily just put together, oh, this is all the same guy. But this movie got me kind of from the beginning. And this has always been one of the off the beaten path ones that I've recommended. If you want something that's way off the beaten path and you're down to like watch something older, this is a great option.
1: Oh, it's so good,
0: y'all. It's so good. But going from watching this on VHS to checking out the Blu-ray that came out several years ago to this new 4K, it is night and day, holy shit, how is a movie this old and low budget? How does it look this good, right? So, I mean, that's the first thing is this movie is a pretty stunning super grimy low budget movie and it's cliche to say that new york is a character in the movie but that's really a case with this instance you feel the like weird twitchy nervous energy of new york while you're watching this and like you said there are hundreds of extras wandering around that don't necessarily realize that they are
1: now in a movie in a movie yeah (laughs) <laughs> As people are literally getting shot. Yeah, there
0: is that audaciousness to this, on top of the fact that this whole movie centers on this religious virus that is then later seemingly a completely different thing, that we're not going to completely spoil a give away like just yet even, but the entire movie is played. Whoosh razor straight.
1: It's not a comedy in any way. Not lighthearted. Yeah. It is wild
0: that this is maybe the goofiest concept. Yet between the like supernaturalistic performances from these regular everyday people for the most part, like there are very few faces in this movie that you're gonna recognize, but everybody is playing it really straight, and the entire thing is shot handheld by paul glickman the cinematographer to kind of give it this uncanny documentary kind of feel on purpose it's wild just how fucking unsettling this movie is and watching the beginning of it again the other night oof-a-doof unfucking pleasant <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> and it's insane the ideas larry cohen is playing with are insane and the directions it goes are insane And like you said, all of it's played straight and it somehow feels so clean, but yet so scuzzy, so dangerous, but yet not necessarily problematic, transgressive dangerous, but it gets there in some instances. I don't know, like it feels almost out of time dangerous, but again, as American society ages, it sucks how well that this movie is playing now in 2023 for so many reasons, (laughs) especially like with the opening, like what, 15, 20 minutes. This is like probably where most people would have the most visceral reaction to, I'd say. It's a mass shooting. Let's not even beat around the bush. The first one is, yeah. It is a depiction of a a mass shooter. A guy literally goes on top of a water tower on top of a building in downtown New York and just starts opening fire on people. He kills over 10 people at least. And the fact that this is from 1976 was interesting to me because I know the University of Texas tower shooter charles whitman he committed that in the 60s i want to say it was like 65 or 66 yeah when he he shot the people on in the university of texas and he killed 15 people i believe i know also new orleans and this one i don't it's surprisingly like i found not many people know about this one maybe because i was born and raised in new orleans but the mark essex mass shooting he's the new orleans sniper yeah he committed the murders actually on new year's of 1972 and he actually did two different days of violence. There was a manhunt for him that lasted, I want to say, like over a week. He committed the first mass shooting on December 31st and then the second one on January 7th. And he winded up committing suicide. And that's a wild true crime story if you want to look that up. Just look up New Orleans Sniper Mark Essex if you want to like read all about that. But that happened also before predating this movie by just a couple of years. Those are just the two like mass shootings off the top of my head. American mass shootings that I can think of that predate this movie at least within the same decade of this movie's release. Well, you're also just focusing on
0: shootings specifically.
1: But like that's how it opens, and that's kind of what my mind wandered to immediately. Yeah. Then the direction we go in, it started making me think of the idea of a religious motivated killer. And granted, a lot of the serial killers that True Crime has covered and and you know, true crime's super popular right now. Even the ones that claim that a higher being or higher power were commanding them to do this, most of the time they sound full of shit, and they are just kind of a asshole loser that were committing these murders and are just trying to find an excuse to cover the fact that they don't want to own up that they did it. But like, it's still interesting, just the juxtaposed nature of random violence with a higher power, not even a religion, just a higher power in general. I mean, throughout history, that's been a thing. Like, you can think back to the Crusades; that was all done in the name of God as well, but. The opening moments of this movie are very unsettling because it just is a mass shooting. And I brought up those other instances just because that's where my mind immediately went to when I was watching this. And it's not necessarily a comfortable state of mind either. Yeah, I guess we can kind of get started
0: there. That'll lead us into discussion still. So this movie was, surprise, surprise, widely panned on its release. I'm not shocked by that. (laughs) But it's obviously since gone on to have a pretty solid cult following, especially in the last several years since a lot of these boutique labels have gotten popular, right? Like I said, Blue Underground had a solid Blu-ray that came out a couple of years ago. Their 4K is out. It's been on streaming for years now. And just more people are discovering it and talking about it, right? Larry Cohen's cult has been growing as well. But especially, too, like you said, as this movie becomes more and more relevant, it's tough to go back and look at this and be like, oh, yeah, this movie got it all wrong. Hmm. Ebert, surprisingly not, gave it one out of four stars. Yeah. He joked that the projectionist played the reels out of order just to fuck with the audience. But ultimately, where Larry Cohen got inspired, I mean, I've I've heard him say, you know, he does all of his best thinking in the shower and these ideas just pop into his head and then he has to go write them down or whatever. But the main thing that he said about this movie, and I've seen it in several places, is just point blank, the Bible itself was his inspiration. Because the entire fucking book is just filled with nonstop violence and genocide. And God is the most violent character of all.
1: Of all (laughs) of fiction, of all of writing. Especially in the Old Testament. (laughs) God is the
0: most violent character in any popular work written by anybody in the history of humanity, right? So like interesting that he comes out fucking swinging with that take. The other interesting of its time influence was Eric von Däniken's book
1: chariots of the gods, which that makes so much fucking sense uh-huh. where this movie goes. Oh we'll, my we'll god. We'll talk
0: about that in a little bit for yeah. people who like don't know what that is.
1: I knew about the Bible connection. I did not know about the Chariots of the Gods connection. That makes so much more sense.
0: But uh, yeah, this is kind of an excellent film to come out on the country's bicentennial. And I've heard from lots of people that that whole year, just everywhere you went, people were like, oh, it's the bicentennial. This is the year that the country turns 200. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, we're gearing up for a bicentennial celebration. Just so much shit was geared up around that. And so this seems like a good kind of half middle finger to that entire idea. Is this movie?
1: That's Larry Cohen. Because when you're not talking about horror, Larry Cohen, you're talking about satirical comedy. Larry Cohen. Well, black exploitation as well. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. a white director that like put out what Black Caesar was the, was the big one. He did Black Caesar and Hell Up in yeah. Harlem,
0: which are fucking awesome, by the way. Yeah, uh, those are both versions of the Frank Lucas story. The guy who. Was smuggling back heroin in the like body bags of GIs from Vietnam because he was sourcing it from the source and bringing it over here. And he like basically took over Harlem and pushed the mob out. So yeah, those movies are fucking awesome. Bone is another super fucking interesting movie that he made about this waspy older white couple. And then just one day, this large scary looking black man played by yafit kodo seemingly wearing prison uniform with like cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve and shit just magically shows up at their house and kind of holds them hostage in their house and puts them through the ringer a little bit but in a more of a like fucking with them kind of way and (laughs) you're ultimately not really sure if any of this is really happening. But it's very much an exploration of race relations and stuff during that era of the 70s. That movie deals with like a whole lot of shit, but it is super fucking interesting. And something that Cohen has mentioned about a lot of his movies is you will kind of get out of this movie what you bring in with you. So if you kind of come into this movie with the preconceived notions of organized religion and how you feel about that and what your beliefs are yes, you might find this movie to be highly offensive if you come in this movie with an open, critical mind and maybe, like, a little bit of cynicism toward our society, like, you'll have something completely different from that,
1: right? Yeah, thanks, Roger Ebert, for your honest review, Jesus. Everything that you
0: kind of bring with you is what you're going to get out of the movie, and I find that to be very true of a lot of his stuff.
1: Going back to that Roger Ebert one-star review, I pulled it up in preparation for this episode. He ends his review basically saying that after the movie, when he walked out of the theater, there was a guy in a straitjacket that was going to do like a Harry Houdini-style stunt of being suspended uh, above the ground, but people were still waiting for it to happen, and he was still standing on the sidewalk. He said even the guy in the, sh- the straight jacket standing on the sidewalk surrounded by all these people was a better show than God told me to. Like, fuck off, Roger Ebert. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but yeah, I, I think... What is most terrifying about this movie now, truly terrifying, is just simply the idea that you could get killed in a random act of violence for just mm-hmm. being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I have friends with kids who are fucking terrified and live with the low-level fear all the time of just their children going to school
1: now. Yep,
0: I have friends <laughs> who... Are just afraid to commute to work and use public transportation? I have friends who work very like public facing jobs where lots of random people come in and out hell. I worked the kind of job for years where I was seeing hundreds of people every day, and I have witnessed some violence like straight up you know not violence toward me well, a couple of cases, but not anything serious, but like I've seen somebody get stabbed in the parking lot. You know, like shit happens.
1: I was going to say, like, I'm not going to give away or say where exactly you worked, but where you worked, where I know you worked. I could see a, an event, like a, a mass shooting happening in, in an environment like that.
0: Yeah. Right. Just takes the right person on the wrong day with the wrong situation happening for them to go off.
1: I've worked in hospitals for years and same thing. I saw some people pop up. I've seen family members that were literally banned, and we're under the threat of if you show up on our unit or in our office, you will be arrested yeah. for threatening. Yeah, And a hospital, another prime example of like a, a place where something like this could totally happen. That's the thing, because like, beyond the mass shooting scene that happens, which is probably the most harrowing scene in this movie, we still have another one that involves police in the, in the St. Patty's Day Parade in downtown New York. We have the aftermath of a random stabbing attack what like a supermarket i think is is where they say it happens and then we have the other one which this one was also bone chilling because just i don't know what actor they had that played this dad but the dad telling like the story as to like how he killed his family like he basically family annihilated them and how calm he was and like matter of fact he was about it that scene like gave me goosebumps the way he describes that how he basically describes murdering his daughter like how he tricked her Yeah, Fuck. That was some intense shit. That gets me to
0: the second bit of this which is (sighs) it's so fucking easy and people do this all the time media does it all the time to jump to the conclusion of well that person had to be crazy. They had to have some mental disorder. They had to have something wrong with them to do this. Pisses me off. And we know now that a lot of times when this shit happens it's just somebody who has Fucking poor to no impulse control. They have anger issues. They have, I am the main character of this story, ego complex. Or in the case of this movie, they like very much have this complete righteous conviction that comes by being poisoned by toxic religion. And religion, in air quotes, is so much broader of a thing. In the wider scope of how we look at violence too, because let's be real, gun culture in america tm is almost like a form of religion. There are people who literally treat their fucking firearms like these holy relics and swear by that and would literally die for the right to still own a fucking weapon of death. There are people who a hundred percent stand by. They are like political beliefs as a form of religion. Again, look at the fucking cult of Donald Trump, MAGA, all that shit, right? It's wild. Veganism. Fuck, if we want to like do the bullshit, (laughs) play both sides of it, right? There's like so many social things now that have been blown up and blown out to where they have a lot of the same methods and means of communication and dissemination and just means of breaking down people's barriers and roping them in in a very cult-like way, drawing them in, right? So, like, it's the kind of thing where now so many of these mass shootings that happen, it's not by crazy people. It's not by delusional people. It's by people who are perfectly sane and are just so deep in whatever shit they're in Or they are so hateful in their fucking hearts that they don't see anything wrong with it. But that complete fucking conviction that I am right is what's very disturbing. And that's a lot of, again, what this movie is dealing with. Because every single one of these people, joy, glee, smiles on their face. Especially the dad who murdered his entire family and all of his young children. He is on the verge of tears, crying with joy. He is shaking. He is so happy. He's excited. What he just did. And that is the most disturbing thing. And what's, again, nuts is you just mentioned some mass shootings. This entire idea of really being just completely poisoned by like a religious conviction, it is not a uniquely American thing. It is not a uniquely Christian thing. It is every... Culture corner of the world, every time period, like there has always it's been
1: antiquity. Yeah, <laughs> this
0: right. Yeah, I mean, just here in America, here is just an off the top of my head shit that I wrote down, smattering that is all religious motivated mass murder, death, etc., and it is all completely wild, unrelated shit, literally from the fucking KKK. To the Salem Witch Trials, Waco, the Rajneeshis, fucking 9-11, the Mormon Massacres, Jonesboro, all the way to, like, smaller shit like Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell, who 100% were convinced we have to kill all of our children for the Lord. We have to kill our children so yep. that they don't experience the rapture. We're doing God's will by giving our children to him now instead of him taking them later. like. All of that shit, and that's all just American.
1: And American. Yeah. All of
0: that that I just listed is just strictly even American.
1: Again, and I, I'd mentioned it in passing earlier, but the other thing that I thought about while watching this movie was the Crusades. Yeah, where it was almost like a collective, not hallucination, but just in the name of God, we're gonna r- go across the land, not just murdering people, like we are gonna rape the women, enslave the children, steal all the artifacts and gold and riches, and just desecrate everything, but it's okay. We're all doing in the name of God yeah. and therefore we're going to go to heaven for our actions. What? <laughs> uh-huh. And granted, this movie is, is a little more personal because it's more individual people scattered across New York City, but it does feel like this... You mentioned virus and that's a really good way of describing it. This growing virus of something showing its power. The movie bounces between like these moments of guerrilla filmmaking on scene Acts of violence juxtaposed with the police procedural with this detective we're following who gets wrapped up in this. And like at the end of the mass shooting, he goes up to the water tower, confronts the shooter and just talks to him. And it's a kid. It's like a 22 year old kid who's same thing, like is just barely hiding a smile about like the actions that he's just taken. And then like he drops the God told me to and then immediately commits suicide by jumping off the water tower. And what a way to start the movie. And it just goes bonkers from there. Part of the reason why like, I love this movie so much is also part of the reason why I, I hate that it is so important to right now, because nothing's really changed, and if anything, it, it's kind of gotten worse. You mentioned, too, like, the idea of immediately jumping to like, oh, well, they must have mental illness, and every time you bring it up, I also have to bring this up, it pisses me off when they do that, because once again, we have found that people with mental illness are actually, by a good percentage, more likely to be the victims of acts yeah. of violence like this than the perpetrators. Yeah, so it always pisses me off to the point where in this movie, none of those people, at least like the ones that we find out a little bit about their history, who they were before they committed these random acts of violence, none of them were mentally unsound. That's the mystery behind this is like they were all seemingly fully sane people, like just working class individuals, just going about their daily lives. And then suddenly they just decide to do this, which is what I'm very happy that the movie doesn't try and take that approach of like, oh, well, one of them was like this person. And, you know, they had a history of this, that and the other to the point where like the one criminal to get away with his his murder, leaving the marking of God on the wall to the point where they immediately are like, oh, no, this is just a copycat who's trying to cover the fact that he is actually like committed murder. But like, it's a totally different motivation. It's a totally different way of doing it. It was nice that Larry Cohen took that approach. And, And you're right. A part of it makes the commentary have more teeth to it. More of a middle finger. Here's what I am inspired by, and no, these are not crazy people. These are people that God told them to do this, so they did it, and they even enjoyed it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's go ahead and switch lanes, and let's okay. get into the fucking twist of this movie. Because again, we're following a police detective named Peter, played by Tony LaBianco, as he is investigating these seemingly unrelated acts of violence. Ultimately, he kind of ties all of these threads together and has an encounter with a woman who claims to have been abducted by aliens and given birth. And she was a virgin. And this person that she gave birth to is this hippie counterculture type with long blonde hair. And everybody kind of, sort of, remembers this person. They kind of, sort of, remember seeing the guy who murdered everybody on the water tower talking to this person. They kind of remember the guy who stabbed everybody in the grocery store talking to this person. But nobody can really remember their name or what they looked like. That's all a mystery. Just nobody seems to have any actual memory of this random individual who seemingly talked to everybody, right?
1: The two, like, identifying things are the long blonde hair and the fact that they seemed beyond gender? Like, not quite male, not quite female. They're just almost ethereal in a weird way.
0: Nobody can put their finger on what it is. They just kind of chalk it up to, like, you know, just people, like, sometimes have an aura. There's something about that person, right? And ultimately, the detective, Peter, ends up discovering another instance of a woman who also had basically the same exact story, and everything completely lines up with his childhood in that he was an orphan, and he was raised in a Catholic orphanage and given to a Catholic family, and he is a devout Catholic.
1: Yeah, to the point where like he is oddly reminiscent of the police detective from Wicker Man. Yeah. That we just talked about recently. He's not quite as much of an asshole, like throw it in your face, like the detective in Wicker Man. But throughout the movie, you're shown that he is deeply religious. Oh, this is Catholic guilt, the movie, because... Catholic guilt, the movie, yeah. To the point where, like, he's still seeing his ex-wife, but he's with this other woman. not
0: ex-wife. They are still married. Oh, they're still married. Yeah, you're right. right. He doesn't even want to get a divorce, because catholicism says you're not supposed to do that yeah he completely lives a separate life from his wife and is seeing somebody on the side right and that's this whole conflict for him and they both
1: are aware that he's still intimate
0: both women are fully aware of what's going on yeah
1: yeah like whether it's physical or emotional or both he's still intimate with both of them it's fucking wild yeah
0: yeah so ultimately he ends up discovering that he is also Apparently, maybe, probably, could be, question mark, the result of a virgin birth from alien abduction. There's a wild scene where he goes to visit a woman played by Sylvia Sidney in a nursing home. And
1: from what I read, she is a legendary actress. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: she's great. We'll talk about her
1: in a second. But the fact that Larry Cohen got her for this role even though she's just in this one scene, is pretty fucking wild.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Basically, she kind of reveals that she, too, was abducted, had maybe an interstellar, ethereal rape occur, and then she gave birth and then gave him up for adoption. And so there's all these dots connected that Peter, this detective, is also seemingly the other side of this coin with... Bernard Phillips, who is the other person that he is trying to find that seemingly influenced
1: all these murders, right? So like with these revelations, right, we get flashbacks too. Like, So this movie balances genres of all kinds. From where it starts and where it finishes are completely different. These felt like the most B-movie moments where they had these flashbacks to the point where even the soundtrack plays that woo alien kind of noise yeah i i can tell more what i felt than what i saw there was motion in the soft sound of engines and i, I seemed to be floating light all around i I, I felt it pass through me we go back to like a 1950s aesthetic of these women getting abducted but it's still fucking terrifying even though the abductions seem almost b-movie level you know there's that one where the woman is just straight up naked and runs to that guy's car
0: yeah, it's really fucking upsetting. It's really it, It's very upsetting. Ominous and weird and disturbing, but that's so much of what you hear when it yeah. comes to like UFO abduction stuff is that it's always weird situations like this. There's always time loss. There's always I woke up somewhere completely different hundreds of miles away. Like it's always wild shit like that.
1: Yeah, and we touched on that actually uh in our fire in the sky episode with Evan. So like if you want to hear more about all of that, you know, go listen to that episode. But again, the fact that it's done in a B movie aesthetic and style, it's all played seriously and it never feels goofy. If anything, it feels even more terrifying, even though, like, we're totally going into a what if God was an alien territory now? And we haven't even brought up the fact that there's even a cult. Granted, the cult turns out to be a little bit of more of a red herring stepping stone to the actual plot that's happening. But, like, there's also even a cabal cult that's also, like, Involved in this in a way that we, we see bits and pieces of that they wind up having an interest in this detective who's like chasing down. so it's a very interesting mix of yeah. sci-fi horror with religious horror with actual violence going on. I know this sounds like a mess. I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous <laughs> and absurd it is it is it
0: is though that is genuinely like what's interesting about all of this is it just keeps but it works folding in on itself. To the point where, like, that 10-foot-wide piece of paper is now, like, you know, a
1: brick. It works so fucking well, though. It still
0: works, ultimately, yeah.
1: Any other filmmaker would have fucked this up so hard, and this movie would have been forgotten about as a terrible mess, but this all works so well. And ultimately, we see Peter
0: kind of start to realize that he also has these very similar psychic type powers that are kind of part of
1: his extraterrestrial lineage what we find out is that bernard just from wherever he's hiding has been psychically commanding these people acting as god and telling them to do these acts of violence as a show force with this cabal that's going on as well that's made up of once again the wealthy and powerful it's kind of been hinted at that his powers are growing. Or their powers are growing as he's becoming <laughs> like more aware too. Yeah, is he the proper pronoun for this character? I guess so because the movie refers to it that way. But again, this being seems otherworldly to the point where like they aren't necessarily human. Sure, and yeah, so like y- you find out throughout the entire movie that this is them doing these suggestions to these people. But the other thing that's really kind of creepy about this movie. So like the only two jump scares I could think of are when he goes to find Bernard's mother and she jumps out of the shadows and attacks him with a knife and then the other part is the first confrontation they have and you're not ready for it because bernard literally is this glowing hippie looking person jumps out of the shadows you see him run in the background those moments were like i guess the closest things to jump scares but they're very unsettling in that way that this bernard character also is convinced though that they are god even if they know their origins are from the cosmos. Well, so that's another thing that I was about to
0: mention a second ago that I have heard Cohen mention before. He compares Peter's dilemma and Bernard's whole situation to the origin story of Superman.
1: That's a very interesting read, yeah. But
0: as if kal had
1: actually been raised
0: in real Kansas around a very thickly evangelical Christianity and the Christ story his whole life.
1: Whoa, that's a really good take, actually. And being that he is this
0: alien who possesses all these extraordinary powers and whatnot that no human possesses, when you're growing up with all of that background, how long would it really take before you start believing that you were, in fact, God, right? that to me i was just like Psh, wait what yeah like why is that not some weird alternate take on the superman story again larry cohen because of course if he landed in fucking kansas it would be just nothing but snake handling and speaking in tongues how right he landed yeah. in the one completely pure american apple pie no religion bullshit family sure i totally believe that in kansas
1: But that goes all the way back to, like, Larry Cohen is so creative, and, like, that's such a simple, yeah, duh, idea, why hasn't that been explored? But then, like, no one's thought about that until Larry Cohen thought about that. And by the way, too, we mentioned it earlier, but if you don't know, Eric Von Daniken's
0: book, Chariot of the Gods, was this popular book in the 60s and 70s. 60s 70s definitely it came out in 68 uh we all know that god has gotten aliens or aliens but you know what if uh god was an alien that's basically what this book presupposes
1: well everyone knows custer died at little bighorn but this book presupposes is maybe he didn't yeah it's the first real like hypothesis on ancient astronauts which that whole craziness yeah yeah ancient astronauts are basically like what if aliens Visited us in ancient times, and we revered them as gods, but they were just extraterrestrial. Or even further, that human beings fundamentally were seeded here by extraterrestrial, by extraterrestrials,
0: yeah. or human beings in a modern sense were from extraterrestrials visiting us and like commingling, procreating with whatever pre-human hominids were here. Right? It is the most.
1: Hit the. Yeah. Hit the blunt.
0: It is the most 1970s. Like, far fucking out, man.
1: Ride the dragon toward the crimson high. Like, old sleep is playing in the background. Basically. Right? Flap the wings under the Mars red sky. Is that
0: to the nth degree? So. Needless to say, though, this was a book that was very popular because at least there was it was huge, yeah. Tons of social discourse around this idea, and it ruffled a shit ton of feathers from every religion around the world, right?
1: Well, and the History Channel now basically owes this book all of its content with the fucking show Ancient Aliens.
0: Yeah, as we discovered in our uh, watch through Gravity Falls, which. By the way, check out our Patreon. It's only $5 a month and you get all this bonus content, including our discussion on the excellent Baby's First Horror Cryptid Wild Horror Cartoon from Disney, uh, Gravity Falls. But anyway, I love the episode where they're watching ghost harassers (laughs) on the used-to-be history channel. (laughs) Because, yeah, yeah, that is pretty much all it is at this point is just uh, fucking... Ghosts and aliens. Yeah, junk pickers and ghosts and aliens. So that entire angle is so unexpected that that's where this movie is ultimately going and that it is all about you and me we're going to like bring humanity to a new fucking level my dude you know it's it's literally joker and batman coming together to create the ultimate society <laughs> you complete me yeah. yeah so it's wild that that's where this fucking movie is ultimately heading all things considered.
1: And right here, since we're on it, I mentioned earlier that watching this movie drew comparisons for me to another master of horror. And so, like, here's where I'll talk about this. Especially the ending of this movie, like the last confrontation scene, I thought a ton about Cronenberg, David Cronenberg. Sure. specifically, Specifically, I thought about his back-to-back movies, The Brood and Scanners. All the psychic stuff and the confrontation between the two brothers as psychics, basically, felt extremely similar to the ending of Scanners because the two brothers who are psychics confront each other. And then I thought a lot about the brood and even a little bit of Videodrome. Sure. Because when they had that final confrontation, Bernard is revealed that, again, we get a piece of this earlier in the movie when the doctor who delivered Bernard talked about, like, This thing I delivered seems beyond male and female, but for legal purposes, we documented it as male. It's also interesting, too, that
0: when he's talking to the doctor, the doctor's wishy-washy about the who, the why, who said what, who made what decision, we're not really sure. Even the circumstances around that are questionable, right?
1: Yeah, and so it's revealed that, again, this person is beyond the human concept of, that and when they're confronting each other he literally reveals a vagina cleft in his abdomen uh-huh. and is basically saying brother let's unite together and i'll bear your children and we will like make a new race of divine beings and the idea is that bernard was the alien human hybrid that his genes were more alien and more otherworldly and peter which Quick aside, I wonder if Larry Cohen chose Peter on purpose again for biblical reasons because Peter was the first build my church apostle from Jesus, famously also denied Jesus 3 times. Denied right? Jesus 3 times, yeah. But Peter, he says you are the human hybrid who was your human genes are more dominant. So the idea is if we come together in union, yeah. we can create the perfect beings. That felt so much like the reveal at the end of the brood, but then also in Videodrome where he gets a fucking vagina growing in his abdomen there's something where like the movie tiptoes a
0: really
1: fine line of being problematic problematic yeah this felt like the closest to problematic i guess you know and granted
0: people who are trans individuals Probably have a different take on this
1: than me, a
0: cis white guy. Yeah,
1: but. Well, and I was going to say that this feels a little bit like the trope of trans equals evil again. Well,
0: I feel like this is one of those things where, again, it skirts that line really hard, but I think the movie is kind of ultimately coming down on once you go alien, you kind of transcend all human norms across the board. All of it becomes a complete irrelevant thing ultimately i
1: think that's what larry cohen was going for like whether or not it's executed in the best way again we're not the ones equipped to say whether or not that's the case well, but i have some more details on some of that decision making
0: in a minute as well too we'll we'll circle back around to some of this okay.
1: but yeah like getting back to the cronenberg i don't know i i just almost feels like cronenberg saw this movie and inspired borrowed stole like ideas for brood scanner maybe even Videodrome. Because, like, they came out 79, 81, 83, this movie was 76. I I don't know, like, the confrontation between the brothers felt oddly familiar, since we covered Scanners earlier, and we've also covered The Brood earlier on our show. Yeah. So let's talk about the production, because this will also
0: kind of answer some of the questions that we still have, and kind of dig into some more of the details so right off the bat, like I mentioned earlier, Larry Cohen works very uh, independently. He finds the money, he makes the movies, and then he finds somebody to distribute the movie for him.
1: Shoots on site, doesn't shut down streets, just whatever's happening, he's yeah. he's in it. He came up through TV and got
0: a pretty bad taste in his mouth for like how the studios worked, how the networks functioned, how executives work. Just always having an answer to somebody, always having somebody over your back, second guessing you and always having somebody that you have to answer to and check in with for every decision that gets made. There's always somebody that you have to report to, and he just doesn't want to fucking work that way. So this was another instance where he like found a team of producers who acquired the money and they made this movie. And the original producers were Edgar Sherrick, who was a former ABC television head. He also produced the Heartbreak Kid and the Taking of Pelham One Two Three, so like he had some pretty big hits, right? And Daniel Blatt, who was Sherrick's lawyer, he was kind of getting into producing, and after this, he would go on to produce the Howling and Cujo and some other big stuff. They literally asked to have their names removed from this movie once they saw the final cut. Wow. Okay. Cohen was even like. I got to redo all the credits. It's going to cost like another $600 for me to redo all the credits. And they were like, (laughs) here's a fucking check. But they found money through some group in Georgia, some tax shelter thing, whatever. And they were just like, here's your money. And he went and made this movie. Cast. So Peter is played by Tony LoBianco. He's one of those that guys that has been in a shit ton of TV and a shit ton of TV movies. He's been in more TV movies than I think I've seen on anybody's credit list, right? He is in The Honeymoon Killers, which is a fucking awesome movie. It was supposed to be Martin Scorsese's first movie, but he got fired off of it after the first week. I know I've mentioned that before on the show. He's also in The French Connection, Serpico, The Seven Ups. He is in Marciano, where he plays Rocky Marciano nixon and a personal favorite of mine and my family's jane austen's mafia robert forster was originally cast in this role and he shot for a few days and left after various creative disagreements with cohen cohen is notoriously serious about the work I have never heard anybody say that Cohen is like an outright terror to work with, but he's busting his ass. Everybody's busting their ass, and they're all spending the money that they got. So he's very serious about we're going to work. Do you know what their disagreements were? Yeah, the creative disagreement apparently was Forster was like, "Oh yeah, my character's whole thing is I'm just always going to be chewing gum. It's going to have gum on my mouth. That's going to be like my mixer, my thing, my character thing." <laughs> Cohen kept saying, "Lose the gum." No, lose the gum. You are ultimately transcendent human alien hybrid god character you are not just casually chewing gum all the fucking time
1: yeah what the fuck
0: is that take kept coming back with the gum and eventually Cohen was like alright done just pack a shit go home Forster was also just like cool I don't have to work like this I'm going home Anyway, they're apparently friends. They wiped all this under the bridge years later, and they're, they were apparently friends until Cohen died, or until both of them died, I guess. Anyway, Le Bianco was previously in a play that Cohen wrote called The Nature of the Crime, so they had already worked together, and Cohen knew, like, yeah, he's a perfect fit, plug him right in. Deborah Raffin plays his girlfriend, Casey. She's in a bunch of TV stuff. She's in The Sentinel, which we've covered on the show. She's in Grizzly 2, colon, Revenge, (laughs) Death Wish 3, and Scanners 2, The New Order. Speaking of Scanners, Sandy Dennis plays Peter's wife in the movie, Martha. She's in Splendor in the Grass, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which she won Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards for. She's in The Out-of-Towners, Comeback to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which that is a terrible fucking title. I've always hated that title. This was one of Robert Altman's '80s movies with Cher and Karen Black and Kathy Bates. Also, early, if not maybe the first role for Mark Patton, star
1: of Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two. Going back to St. Dennis one more time, I recognized her from Something Evil, the TV movie that our boy Steven Spielberg directed. That yep. I brought up uh, as a recommendation on a past episode she plays the main character the mother in that movie and two of her last roles were
0: 976 evil and parents weirdly enough as we mentioned before the woman that peter goes to visit who kind of tells him the story who ends up you know being his mother elizabeth is played by sylvia Sidney. she is one of the fucking old queens of hollywood she was a pre-code actress she was in a shit ton of tv and then she just has this stint late in her career in the 80s and 90s when she's old as fuck but she is just doing nothing but genre stuff in addition to this movie she's also in fury she's in damien the omen 2 she's fucking juno in beetlejuice and she's the grandma in Mars attacks
1: speaking of again a recent (laughs) patreon episode of ours from everything i was reading uh when i was looking stuff up about this movie so many people kept saying like it, it's kind of wild she's in this movie a and b she's like she's really fucking good and the one she's scene really she's good in, she's really fucking good not that she's above this movie but like that she is you said hollywood royalty so it's kind of amazing she was in this movie of all things cohen knew people
0: i mean that was kind yeah. of
1: thing is cohen was one of those guys that fucking
0: knew everybody and like kind of got along and was buds with a lot of people it was easy for him to like get the people that he wanted even with the budgets that he had you know obviously he couldn't hire a-list talent just because of dollar signs essentially but he was still able to get a lot of people who would like show up and work for a day show up and work for scale or whatever last couple of recognizable faces the police commissioner is played by Mike Kellen, (laughs) who's in a lot of TV stuff, Freebie and the Bean, Midnight Express, Girlfriends, Just Before Dawn. Most notably, he is the fucking head camp counselor owner guy from fucking Sleepaway
1: Camp. That's where I remember him from. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Bernard Phillips, kind of the ultimate MacGuffin of this movie, is played by Richard Lynch, who is one of my favorite wild as fuck crazy edgy villain actors of anybody and crazy cult exploitation shit so he started off in tv as well pretty much everybody did he's in this movie called scarecrow which is fucking good dustin hoffman kind of road movie right he shows up in this movie as this fucking psychotic drifter guy who beats the shit out of dustin hoffman cohen saw this And was like, that's my guy. That's who I want for this fucking role. Nice. As you probably saw in the movie, he is burned over a lot of his body. He has insane burn scars all over his face. So the tenement building at the very end of this movie didn't have any proper rooms. It was a real falling apart tenement building. So the actors were all changing in just kind of whatever corners they could find. Cohen happened to see Lynch... Shirtless and see all of his scars. And he just asked him, like, yo, are you comfortable revealing those scars on camera? Are you comfortable just kind of literally being in your own skin exposed that way? And he was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. So the scene where you get the kind of crazy, you know, the brood reveal, right, where you see the kind of abdominal vagina, that is an actual deep scar. That is on Lynch's side and only that close up moment where you see it kind of pulsating is that like an actual makeup effect. So Cohen literally they just kind of improv that story bit about procreating a new alien human hybrid Messiah and all that bullshit. That was all completely worked up on the spot because he had this physical anomaly, right? That is wild. That is absolutely wild. Lynch was in the Marine Corps for four years. In 67, he kind of finds himself doing a lot of fucking hard drugs, kind of in and out of homelessness. In 67, he sets himself on fire in Central Park while he was heavily intoxicated. Holy shit. I'm not sure. I've never heard if it was on purpose or accidental or whatever. But he spent a year recovering and getting sober. And he eventually attended the actor's studio and landed a lead role in One Night Stands of a Noisy Passenger, which was written by Shelly Winters and co-starred Sally Kirkland, Diane Ladd, and Robert De Niro. So like, he kind of instantly got his foot in the door and started making some good connections. So anyway, yeah, Cohen brought him in, and kind of after this movie, he just went on a tear where he was... In The Seven Ups and The Ninth Configuration, he's in The Sword and the Sorcerer, Cut and Run, Invasion USA, where he's the bad guy, and he is fucking awesome in that. Uh, Savage Dawn, The Barbarians featuring The Barbarian Brothers, <laughs> Night Force, Bad Dreams, Trancers 2, my favorite, Alligator 2, The Mutation, where he's like a badass fucking alligator hunter.
1: Is Alligator 2 worth watching? Is that a good one?
0: Oh, you should totally watch both of those Alligator movies, yes. We will 100% cover the first movie eventually. Necronomicon, Book of the Dead, Scanner Cop, which is the Scanners franchise takes a weird divergent turn where there are still like Scanner 2 and 3, but then there's like a side series of sequels called Scanner Cop. I didn't realize Scanner Cop was based off of Scanners, Uh are you kidding me? And then he is in Rob Zombie's Halloween and Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem. And uh, he died in 2012, unfortunately. The ethereal glow around him, like, I love that fucking gross piss yellow kind of color. Yeah. That's just suddenly, like,
1: blasted. Like, you could almost hear the brightness in the frame. It almost is like, what if you saw Jesus actually? And this Uh, is what it's actually like to the point where it's hurting your eyes. It's actually kind of more disturbing than anything. Yeah. And it's not necessarily like a glowing, warm light. It's more of like this intense aura that is unsettling and unpleasant to be around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They
0: achieved that practically. Really? Yeah. They just threw color gels on the lights and they purposely overlit Lynch so that he was Blown out and overexposed on the film. So, anyway, yeah, he's a super interesting presence in this movie in just his two short scenes. And the last person I want to mention is Andy fucking
1: Kaufman. Yeah, I read the same tidbit I think that you're about to say. (laughs) Yeah,
0: he plays the policeman who is in the St. Paddy's Day March, which more on that in a second. This was his debut film, was it? Cohen saw him at the improv club in New York City and immediately asked him to be in the film. Like, I think he even joked, you're fucking weird. I want to be the first person who said that I put you in a movie. Be in my movie. And Kaufman was down as soon as he, like, heard what the premise was and that his scenes were all going to be guerrilla shot during the fucking parade. He was like, oh, I'm absolutely about this fucking mischief, right? Kaufman, widely known to be a fucking eccentric
1: that's a that's a light way of saying it let's just say professional piss other people off guy (laughs) yeah
0: he is one of the greatest examples of professional troll in the industry yeah absolutely he is most well known for being in taxi driver a movie called in god we trust with marty feldman and peter boyle and richard Pryor and our girl louise lasser from blood rage and just getting banned from like everywhere he got banned from fucking snl he was also known for this tony clifton character which we've seen younger people look him up if you uh are unaware of what this whole fucking thing was but uh let's just say maybe he did maybe he did not dress up as like a completely different person and show up with a completely different fucking voice and like character and sometimes it wasn't actually him it was somebody else doing it what is the fucking character from atlanta the creepy fucker from atlanta that everybody was like oh that's totally just donald glover and like white people make up but then like donald glover himself shows up to awards show and that character showed up and everybody was like wait so who the fuck is this guy right it's the same yeah. idea
1: well and so like one of his partners continued on the tony clifton bit um this yeah. is a quick aside listeners but aaron and i have actually seen the character tony clifton it's basically like what if a wrestling gimmick continued to live on and multiple people just kept using the same gimmick once the other person died or they traded off or whatever so like one of his comedy partners Kaufman's comedy partners continued the Tony Clifton persona and when we saw Primus in New Orleans back in 2012 or 2013 Aaron Tony Clifton was the opener it wasn't a band it was it was Tony Clifton and it was pretty delightful but like I don't think half the crowd understood the bit yeah. So it was hilarious to see, I like, was losing my
0: shit. Oh, thing, you know? I, It
1: was hilarious to see this guy, like, do anti comedy bombing on purpose and half the crowd booing him and hating it. And the other half the crowd who was in on the bit understanding and dying. Yeah. The other thing about Kaufman, and that I think this will set up to, like, what he was doing during this shoot is that, again, he reveled in pissing people off. He actually got involved in professional wrestling uh-huh. mostly feuding with Jerry the King Lawler. He played a heel character, the villain character, but he took it to another level. He would purposely wrestle women, which at the time intergender gender matches was a big no-no. Yeah, that was definitely a taboo thing. He would boast that he could beat up all other wrestlers and he would wrestle women and do it, which would piss off the crowd. There was one moment I remember reading about like I think it was either in Memphis, but he basically like claimed that they were the redneck capital and showed a video on the proper use of soap people were ready to like <laughs> jump the barricade to beat his ass he would have these staged fights with jerry the king lawler where they wouldn't necessarily let anyone else in on the joke the most famous one being on a late night with david letterman in the 80s i've seen parts of this yeah yeah so like kaufman you're right he was the original troll to the point where he continued doing it even in the shooting of the scene that he's in Where he, again, he is the police officer causing another mass shooting event in the movie during St. Patty's Day. The other thing, too, with this whole scene with
0: Kaufman, apparently he didn't know what size any of his clothes were. (laughs) Cohen was just like, yeah, we need to get you a police costume. What size shirt you wear? He's like, I don't know. What size pants you wear? I don't know. He's like, what the fuck? You're a grown man. How do you not know what clothes you wear? He's like, I don't know. I just wear my dad's old
1: clothes. (laughs) I bet he was fucking with them. I bet he was fucking with them. He could have been, but that's also
0: the exact kind of eccentric thing. that He probably did just fucking wear his dad's old clothes and he doesn't give a shit, right? Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we've mentioned it a couple times. Cohen did not have a permit to shoot during the fucking New York St. Patrick's Day parade. (laughs) But he figured with all the chaos... Who the fuck would know? And who the fuck would question it? They're all there with cameras. Usually when you are filming in a big city like that and you do not have permits, if you see police, you lower all the equipment and you walk in the fucking opposite direction. I mentioned this before on the show, I'm pretty sure, but uh your boy got in trouble in college filming without a permit in an area where yeah. we were like not necessarily allowed to be. It was like an abandoned house. In a neighborhood, and the house was like completely condemned and overgrown, and everything else, and we were filming there and uh let's just say walking around the corner and having a bunch of fucking police officers, weapons drawn at you, yelling at you to get down on the ground, and everything is not fun and uh could have been a dangerous situation and I'm sure if we were uh not doofy white kids with a camera, we probably would have been shot anyway, so they're filming this whole thing with 5,000 cops marching in this fucking parade.
1: <laughs> Simulating a mass shooting by a cop. <laughs> Not quite. Let's step back a okay. little bit. Okay. Not quite. Okay. All right. So,
0: all the shit with the parade and the detectives running around through the crowd and all that, all of that was actually being shot there. Okay. They had three camera crews covering the parade, and each team would film and then run way ahead to keep pace with the parade and keep filming at the new point point. and again the police didn't bat an eye because there were cameras and the cameras were obviously right there so like even in all the staged chaos it was obvious what was going on but yeah they literally got Andy Kaufman dressed at a diner and then he just walked out into the crowd and just walked
1: right in line with the rest of the police officers and started <laughs> marching the story I have is that before they even started filming, while he, I think he's in full cop uniform, dude starts talking shit to someone yes. <laughs> like the crowd. He was
0: antagonizing
1: people, apparently, yeah. and
0: Larry Cohen had to tell him, like, you
1: have to stop, you're
0: going to get us caught.
1: Yes, well, some of the crowd members were about to jump the barricade and try and beat the shit out of Coffin, yeah. and Cohen had to, like, hold them back. Yeah,
0: so they shot all that. Cohen literally flew back to L.A., called up all the Irish American organizations in the area and said, Hey, do you want to do a march? Let's do a march. Y'all don't do a march out here in LA. Let's do an Irish, you know, St. patty's Day march. And they were just like, fuck yeah. So they bust in tons of people, marching bands, majorettes, etc. And they completely fucking staged the St. Paddy's Day Parade in LA. They shot the rest of the scenes with all the like hard chaos. And blood squibs and all that shit there in that controlled environment where they could then take that footage and match it in with the actual New York stuff and it's all completely seamless,
1: right? Yeah, that makes so much more sense because I don't understand how the fuck they could have gotten away with it if they tried to do all that in the middle of the bridge no
0: no it, if they had pulled a fake gun even with the cameras around like mm, that's questionable
1: yeah eddie <laughs> coffin might have died even before his time <laughs> yeah really um but
0: no they they shot all that back in la and apparently cohen didn't have to spend a fucking dime for any of this because the irish american organizations just all showed up in costume, all their instruments. Like they just all brought their own people and did this shit for anyway. So yeah, just that is a fucking wild instance of guerrilla filmmaking. And there's also when we talk Q the winged serpent, eventually like that's another example of, holy shit, there were guys with fake machine guns blasting at the top of the Chrysler building <laughs> and nobody got arrested. You would be a fucking terrorist and go to jail forever if you did that kind of shit now if you
1: even survived yeah (laughs) yeah
0: so in the flashbacks we have all these weird alien abduction scenes right with like a fucking spaceship interior
1: and the women
0: like floating in these orbs of light and all this shit
1: yeah it is very abduction but they keep it just unknowable enough to where you, you're you not a thousand percent sure what the fuck is happening.
0: Well, it's also interesting because the footage kind of takes on a different quality. It is desaturated to the point where it's almost black and white to give it kind of this old sci-fi retro flashbacky kind of feel. This is where he gets B-movie yeah. with this movie. The reason why it's tonally a different style and look is because he was like, fuck, I don't have the budget to like build a fucking fake alien ship interior and all that. And I don't want to pay somebody else to do all of it and film all the scenes for me. Like, I want to know that I'm getting what I need. He basically bought a giant chunk of unused stock footage from the TV show Space 1999 with Martin Landau. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. Then they filmed the scenes with the actress floating and optically imposed the actress onto all that stock footage. And Cohen wasn't necessarily aware of how popular that show was. He also had no idea that everyone immediately recognized, like, oh, that's this fucking spaceship from this TV (laughs) show that everybody knows now. So he, like, kind of caught shit for that for a couple of years. Oops. Yeah. But still, it totally works for what the movie is trying to do. They shot those sequences at Pinewood Studios in England, because it was actually way cheaper to shoot in England than it was to shoot in L.A. during that time. Even with traveling that far, huh? Yeah. Okay. He was able to make use of a lot of people that he had met through Bernard Herrmann, the composer. Cohen shot a lot of It's Alive over in England. and the movie was scored in England by Bernard Herman. So like Herman literally convinced him just like, yo, it's fucking awesome over here. Move your whole family here. Just come live here. So Cohen did. Cohen just moved to England for a year to finish up that movie, but he made a lot of good contacts that he then utilized for like doing all the effects stuff for this movie. Yeah. On that note, Bernard Herman was supposed to score this movie. Uh, If you know nothing about movies, Bernard Herrmann's one of the fucking greatest film composers who ever lived. Just to give you an idea, he scored Citizen Kane and Vertigo and North by Northwest and Psycho, a bunch of Brian De Palma's early stuff like Sisters and Obsessions. Again, he scored It's Alive for Larry Cohen and Taxi Driver and fucking Insanity out of that entire list of stuff that I just listed off. Again, like Psycho and Vertigo have two of the best fucking movie scores ever written. driver is the only movie in that list that was even nominated
1: really and it
0: was only posthumously which is fucking wild anyway that's that's crazy herman was meant to score this film he screened the first cut of it without the score and then literally died in his sleep that night
1: oh wow larry cohen woke up to a call
0: from martin scorsese who was like by the way Bernie's dead. Fuck. So he replaced him with Frank Cordell, who scored Khartoum and Cromwell, which he was nominated for an Oscar for, and uh, just basically told him, like, I just want you to do a Herman-esque score for me. He even recorded at Cripplegate Church, which is where Herman recorded the score for It's Alive. The other thing I noticed was it said Robert O'Ragland provided two songs in addition to this score and i was like that's a weird way to state this robert O'Raglan scored larry cohen's if not his next movie the one after cue the winged serpent he did abby and grizzly which are both fucking crazy william girdler movies he did deadly games he did 10 to midnight and my favorite, favorite of my family's, because again, we were big mystery science theater people. This is absolutely one of the all time fucking funniest mystery science theater movies, which is The Touch of Satan.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that episode, too. Yeah, that's one of the more famous, funnier ones. It's fucking buck wild, man. We used to watch
0: that all the time. I literally messaged my mom last night and I was like, holy shit, I'm taking notes to this thing that we're about to record this guy fucking scored touch of satan she was like holy shit
1: grandma Applehead!" <laughs> yep yeah well and, and to go back to uh frank cordell for a second because you said he recorded in, in the church as well did he do like all of the religious organ music that plays yeah. over the opening credits yeah all that was so good
0: The music in this, like, despite it not being Bernard Herman and just actually being a Bernard Herman ripoff, the music in this is all really good and really yeah. interesting to, like, have, like you said, the choir and the yeah. pipe organ in the background through a lot of it. It's really unsettling.
1: Despite it being religious, it's very menacing. Yeah. And then just, again, the the juxtaposition between the choir, like you're in a church looking at the stained glass window next to, like, literal B-movie alien music is kind of fucking wild, but works so well in this movie. Yeah. Also, I I saw with Cordell, he actually died pretty soon after as well, in 1980. Yeah. So both composers were dead shortly around this movie being released.
0: Yeah. My take is it has nothing to do with this movie being cursed. It has everything to do with the Cripplegate church being
1: cursed. (laughs) Yeah.
0: There you go. That pipe (laughs) organ was cursed. Claims both their souls. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Ultimately, Roger Corman acquired the finished film for New World Pictures, so he distributed this, and much to Cohen's dismay, they aggressively marketed the film as this highly controversial and offensive treatise against religion, right? It was literally marketed with the tagline, the leaders of all organized religions have forbidden their constituents to see this movie. Instead of just simply marketing it as a horror thriller, right? Like, they made this big deal out of how controversial it is, and that totally kind of fucking backfired. I think, ultimately, too, part of the problem was this movie premiered October 22nd of 1976. 40 years to the day before my wife and I got married.
1: Did you watch us on on the night after? <laughs> no. <laughs> after we like
0: conceived our alien human child? No. Yeah.
1: I stood your wedding. We we performed the proper rituals. Why didn't yeah, you? Uh... I was glowing with just uh, the
0: brightest piss yellow light. <laughs> anyway, they premiered this movie in fucking Texas. What? So of course putting it out in the middle of the Bible Belt and not, you know, new york la chicago any other major city of course this movie didn't fucking do well and critics immediately were like what the fuck is this right yeah
1: why the fuck
0: did they do that yeah the legion of decency apparently picketed this film's
1: release the legion of decency (laughs) whatever they are right (laughs) i'm looking them up now yeah cohen
0: very much again
1: insists that The film is kind of what the audience makes of it based on what they bring in. By the way, The Legion of Decency was a Catholic group founded by an Archbishop of Cincinnati in 1934. There you go. So a a Catholic church group. Of course, they're going to pick at this.
0: But very much again to Cohen's notion that you're going to take from this movie and make of it what you bring in with you. Of course, if you come in and you are ultra religious for what that is. Yeah, you're going to come out of this movie being like, mm, I don't know how I feel about what this movie is trying to do and say,
1: right? It is critical of religion. Like, I, I oh, will absolutely. say that. Absolutely. It is very
0: critical of it. And, of course, conflating the idea of organized religion with, you know, extraterrestrials is also kind of that extra, like, oh, you went there wrinkle.
1: Well, and it even, it even takes a step further because it's not just religion. It's critical of just God. Sure. Period.
0: Yeah. Well, again, to the notion of the roots of human existence and all that, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Bernard even says that line, like, Jesus, Moses, there were others before us, basically uh-huh. saying Jesus was just me back then. <laughs> yep.
0: So, yeah, after this film basically tanked in the U.S., Corman reissued it in the U.K. under the title Demon which was insisted upon by
1: <laughs> Corman. Demon! Demon!
0: <laughs> Cohen was like, why don't we retitle it Alien? That at least is kind of saying what it actually is. Keep in mind, this is just a few years before Ridley
1: Scott's Alien. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, this would have predated Alien. Yeah,
0: he was like, why don't we just call it Alien? And Roger Corman was like, that's fucking stupid. It's too simple. Nobody would like that movie. <laughs> I'm giving you like the most side eye right now. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, but again, this movie has become an interesting cult item, certainly. I think streaming and recent home media releases have done this movie a lot of good. There is also a cool novelization that you can find on the Internet Archive and check out for free by C.K. Chandler, which has the most fucking rad cover art. And the last little blurb that I have written down is a legendary, supposedly, story, according to Cohen is that a young French filmmaker reached out to him with a desire to remake this movie. They met for breakfast. Cohen was pitched. He was like, yeah, that sounds interesting. Let's talk further. Cohen then went and checked out the directors of the films and decided that, uh, they weren't necessarily his cup of tea. That filmmaker was Gaspar Noe, <laughs> director of I Stand Alone, Irreversible, Enter the Void, Love climax and vortex <laughs> so uh apparently cohen just never heard from no way after that initial meeting so i guess he just lost interest or couldn't get the whole thing together not sure but cohen's even just like shrug i don't know what happened with
1: that i battled this because is this a movie that should be is this a movie that should be remade
0: or just watch it
1: right because i've already said a couple times this feels like an out of time movie before ahead of its time a movie that unfortunately only ages better at least for uh us americans (laughs) the aspect of mass violence yeah yeah and juxtaposition of religion with violence but i was wondering like because we do have plenty of great horror filmmakers in modern horror right now could there be a filmmaker who could modernize this and and take an interesting spin on it yes you would have
0: to find a filmmaker who is a writer first yes that was kind of cohen's whole bag he was a writer first who also directed. I can't remember who said this, but on the like King Cohen documentary kind of about his life and career, somebody said Larry Cohen director only started directing to protect Larry Cohen the writer cuz again, he just got tired of his work getting pff, fucked a million ways, so he like literally started directing shit himself. Yeah. You would have to have a filmmaker who really has a knack for writing in order to crack this story and mold it in a way that a it is still relevant and it doesn't come off as too slapshod, too satirical, too petulant, too milk toast you have to have a writer who's really going to be kind of hard-nosed about what this movie is, but also not come across as three-edgy five-me, bro. you got to have the right kind of person to make this. And I think there are lots of very technically proficient hard directors out there right now. I, I think that there is a much lower bar to jump in terms of technical skills in directing now, because digital is like its own crazy can of worms but it's just not as tedious and complicated in so many day-to-day ways as shooting on film. Yeah. Editing is a lot more streamlined in a lot of ways compared to editing on film.
1: Frankly, they should honestly get people that are involved that can handle the gender moments of it which granted again, yes. I don't think Cohen had any intention of anything problematic, but that stuff I don't think would age well and i think it would need to be rewritten in a way that's very again
0: you gotta have the right person doing it right yeah i think this movie could be super fucking interesting if somebody remade it now especially like in the light of fucking reality from the last few years even yeah this movie would be super interesting if somebody remade it but you would really have to have the exact correct script
1: i think i ultimately land on If this movie is not never remade, I want people to go back and watch this movie and rediscover it. Yes. I think it deserves a lot more attention than it's gotten even now with the cult status it has. But at the same time, if they did announce that someone was remaking this, I would be very interested and invested that it it was a good remake. Yeah. That's kind of where I ultimately land with remaking this. In the hands of the right writer and filmmaker, I could see the stuff being a good remake movie. And I'm excited to watch... Cohn's other horror works for our podcast and see if those would also make for a decent remakes possibly yeah that's what's wild is i think there's still a lot to say about q
0: in terms of things we still do in this modern day and age with appropriating other people's cultures from around the world and the way that we treat culture and artifacts i think there's a lot to still be said about The stuff, I think there's a lot to be said still about It's Alive in terms of the whole abortion debate.
1: They're all very, very relevant still. With Q especially, I'm very curious uh, for us to eventually cover that because it once again feels like Larry Cohen playing in grimy 70s, 80s New York. Yeah. We didn't really even touch on that much in, in this episode, but it's there too. Like, beyond all this other crazy shit that's happening, it's there. Hell, there's that even weird quick aside where he goes to confront the pimp in the bar and that's yeah. like where he figures out he has the same powers and that's like another wild turn too that this movie takes i'm i'm with you aaron like the more i've watched movies in general but especially horror movies we covered i love 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 70s 80s grimy new york because it is something we'll never see again it was such a great aesthetic not just for horror but for thrillers for action etc like yeah it's such an interesting slice of culture from the 70s and 80s that that's captured in film hell yeah go watch this movie it is yeah. available
0: on shutter currently i know i've seen it before on amazon and tubi blue underground has a fucking gorgeous 4k that is out right now
1: i would back aaron up on this i i normally kind of let aaron do the 4k spiel but i 100 percent agree with him this if you're gonna watch this movie you can't go wrong with the Shutter release, but I would implore that you will at least watch on Shutter, if not the four K release, because the restoration's beautiful. And frankly, like Blue Underground's Blu-ray of this movie was stellar looking.
0: Or if you haven't gone full hog on the four K train yet, which most people have not, their Blu-ray of this looks incredible. So I mean, definitely just watch this movie, like whatever way that you can. Go ahead and watch it for sure, because it is absolutely worth your time.
1: Yeah. Once again, this movie blew me away. I think I would throw this up there as like one of my favorite personal horror movies. Now, just from one watch, I loved it. I was a thousand percent board. And frankly, like for any of you listeners who do check it out, a recommendation doesn't gel with you, I'd love to hear from you. This isn't something like I'm going to argue you on this point. Like I, I'm sure this movie does not work for certain people um, because Larry Cohen is so fucking Buck Wild. So I, I'd love to hear any take, good or bad. Yeah. So yeah, like reach out to us. Hell yeah. All right. Well, that is going to be it for this episode. So you want to go
0: ahead and take us out?
1: Yeah, we are Watch of Dare, horror movie podcast hosted by me, Coward Craven, and my monster movie co-host, Aaron. You can find us at any podcatchers, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, et cetera. Please continue to follow us and please continue to rate and review us. uh, Five stars, please, especially on Apple, Spotify, uh, Podchaser, Good Pods. Those are where we get most of our reviews from. Um, every little bit helps please consider donating to our patreon we are at patreon.com slash watch if you dare again that is patreon.com slash watch if you dare it's only five dollars a month for now and more people get involved we'd love to open up other contribution levels for different things such as t-shirts and getting involved with helping us pick future movie topics otherwise you get access to our patreon episodes we do deep dives on franchises like gravity falls we do list episodes and get to know us more we just recently did non-horror movies that disturbed us and in the future moving forward we're going to do franchise deep dives other tv series and hopefully some interviews with some industry and horror related people so again please consider donating to us those of you who donate already thank you so much please continue to spread the word for our show and help grow our audience again every little bit helps you can listen to our Spotify music playlist. We have it pinned on our Facebook page and you can get to it on our Podbean website. Uh, All our relevant links are on our Podbean website. Our Podbean website is also linked in our profile on Twitter. So go there. Speaking of music, shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the bumps at the beginning end of each episode and the bumps for our Patreon episodes as well. Go check out his music at Party Gator, Big Clown, what on band camp is where you can find most of his stuff yes and our social speaking which are at watch if you dare on facebook and twitter so check us out there too so yeah that's it but before we go aaron you got to come clean with me now like right then the episode why'd you pick this movie sally told me to yeah bad god